It's early and I already need a, a drink. We've had all weekend with our students, we had a disciple now this weekend. And so if you see a bunch of teenagers running around with a lion shirt on, that came from this weekend. And so we looked all weekend through the book of Daniel. And so we are usually, uh, here at The Journey, we're usually pretty deliberate as we uh, work through books of the Bible. We have been in John now for, what, over a year, almost a year and a half. And so it was a little bit of whiplash for our students. We went through the book of Daniel in two days. So, um, but as we talked through Daniel, um, our theme for the weekend was exile, teaching our students how we live in exile, that if we are in Christ, that this world is not our home, that we have been taken and placed specifically here in our culture, in our lives, in order to live out God's plan. And so some of the themes that we saw, we saw that it is possible for us to live a faithful life while we are in exile. We saw how God can vindicate his faithful servants. And even though in Daniel, he does some incredible things, sometimes God isn't always going to save us. And so as we look at our faith, is our faith going to remain even in those moments where God says, you know what, I'm going to call you home. So we talked about that with our students, and we also looked at how God humbles the proud, he raises up the humble. We talked about how there will be suffering, persecution in this life. In all of this, God is sovereign, that he has his own sovereign plan, and God calls us because of all of that to remain faithful to him. So if you have a chance to talk with one of our students, I would encourage you to do that. It was a great weekend of fun and fellowship, but also diving into God's word, but we are in John chapter 9, in, or not John chapter 9, we're in John chapter 12. So if you want to turn to John chapter 12, let me switch my notes over. So as we start out, we want to remember that at this point in John's gospel, we are six days from the cross. We are six days from Jesus' crucifixion. crucifixion the Passover is at hand, and so a couple weeks ago, as we started this chapter, we saw that Mary, the brother of Lazarus, she anoints Jesus with a uh, very costly perfume. Uh, it equals an amount equal to one year's salary, and she just pours this out, anointing Jesus before his death, before his burial. And then we saw Judas's response to that, didn't we? How he objected to that, and he said, hey, we could have saved all of that money we could have sold that and given it to the poor. And so as we looked at that, we examined what the worth of Jesus is to us. What is his value to us? <clears throat> and so last week, we come to the portion in the story where we have the triumphal entry, that Jesus is praised as the coming Messiah as he enters into Jerusalem. And this has the entire city all worked up. Like everybody is there, there's excitement, there's tension, and I was trying to think, we really don't have a context for this. I, I don't know that we have just something kind of in our national identity that we're all excited about, that we're waiting for, that everybody is on the edge of their seats. I was trying to think of a couple of examples. I was thinking maybe, uh, for those of you that remember the Apollo 13, those astronauts coming home. You know, what I've been told, you see the movie, like everybody is there waiting. Are they going to make it back? I think of the U.S. team beating, beating the Soviets in hockey, everybody watching that impossible game and beating that impossible team. Or even something like when bin Laden is killed, how everybody 
knows where they were. Everybody knows that name and how we were all just waiting for that moment as a country because of 9-11. And so we don't really have this sort of frame of reference that the Jews would have as Jesus comes into the city. He's coming in as an anointed king, and as he comes in, there's only two options available at this point. Either Jesus is going to come in and conquer, or he's going to be killed. And so think of all the Old Testament prophecies. The Jews know the Old Testament uh, promises of God, and they know that God promises that the Messiah is going to rule forever, right? So there will be no reign to his end, and so they can't fathom another scenario other than Jesus coming in and conquering. But do you remember what Caleb taught us last week? That conquering kings, they don't come in on donkeys, right? A conquering king... If he's coming in on a donkey, what's going to happen? He's going to get killed. And so we saw this juxtaposition of man's expectation versus what the will of God is. And so that got me thinking, uh, I like oxymorons. I just think in those terms, think about things that don't go together. So I was just looking up some of these. And so uh, I'll share a few of these with you. These first couple are from my friends in IT. We had some IT issues this weekend as we... Uh, did some stuff with our students, but IT help desk. Has anybody ever called an IT help desk and actually gotten the help they need? I'm looking at Tyler over here. <laughs> he told a story this weekend where he couldn't help somebody that called. So uh, what about Microsoft Works? Microsoft doesn't work. If you're a green bubble person, I'm just saying I'm an Apple person. If you're a green bubble person, we can't be friends. Um, what about Happy Monday? Tomorrow's Monday. We go to work. I had a woman that I worked with for about eight years, and every, every day we would come in and we would say good morning to her because we knew what her response would be. She would say, nope, just morning. So in her mind, good and morning don't go together. So um, those are just a few things that we know that don't always go together. And again, Jesus, he's going to lean in today. He's going to lean into this juxtaposition. He's going to look at the difference between the expectations of man in the expectations of God. And to say that this is going to be controversial to those who are there, those that are present, that would be an understatement. Because what he's going to teach the people around is that, hey, what you were cheering for as I came in on this donkey, let me tell you what, what this really means. And so I think this is part of the reason why we go from, hey, everybody is cheering for Jesus And then in six days, they have completely flipped. Have you ever wondered how that happened? Like, how did that happen? And how did it happen so fast? Like, we have an election coming up in November. And I'm going to go out on a limb and say, probably everybody already knows who they're going to vote for. And so if I had the next nine months to convince you to change your vote, I don't think I'd be very successful in that. But these people... Look how quickly they changed their vote. They're going to go from Jesus is our guy to he's not our guy to kill him. We don't want him around. And so today he's going to teach us the whole reason for that is that life comes from death. That life comes from death. And this is the polar opposite of what the crowd here is going to expect. You see, they can't see past the end of their nose. Right? They only see what's directly in front of them, and Rome is what is in front of them. 
And not that that's insignificant because Rome is a big deal. Rome is oppressing the people, but all they can see is Rome. They can't see past the real, uh, they can't see past their nose. And they don't even realize that Rome isn't the real enemy. The real enemy is sin. That Jesus could come in and he could wipe out Rome in an instant. But if that's all that he did, we are still in trouble. We've all lost. And so the implications for Jesus, he's going to tie back to us. He's going to say that I'm the king and I'm going to die. And if you want to follow me, you have to give up everything and die to yourself. So we're going to read in John chapter 12. We're going to read verses 20 through 26. So if you have your copy of God's word, you can follow along. So this is what God's word says. It says, Now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying an angel has spoken to him. But Jesus answered and said, this voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now the judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. The crowd then answered, We have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, For a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light so that the darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. Let's pray. So, Lord, we thank you for your word and what you reveal to us. We thank you that you, you are the light and that in your light we see light. We also thank you for the cross, that you didn't avoid it, but that you took it for our sakes, God. We ask that you help us to follow you, we ask that you help us to understand what it means to give ourselves up for you. And more than anything, God, we ask that you give us strength to lay down our lives for you. So we thank you for your grace, and we ask that you move in our midst. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So as we start off this morning, I want to give just a little bit of context before we get going. So this, this little scene that we have here, this is the last of Jesus's public ministry. This is the last time that we will see Jesus in public before his trial. That will be his next public appearance. And so if you remember back a couple weeks ago to chapters 11, 
we saw that the religious leaders, they are already plotting this trial and they have already determined the verdict. And so there's no suspense for us. So this is the last time that we will see Jesus in public. The rest, the remainder of the time, Jesus will be working with his disciples. But as we start out, we see we're introduced to some Greeks and they want to meet Jesus. And so these Greeks, these are Gentiles, they are non-Jewish people who speak Greek and they are from the Greek-speaking world. And so we learn that they are God-fearing, that they have come to worship Yahweh at the Passover. And so they seem to know the Lord, they seem to have some sort of relationship with him, and we realize that they understand that Jesus is a big deal. They know that there's something about him. They, we can assume that they are probably familiar with his teachings, that they have maybe even witnessed some of the miracles. And so they come to Jesus. And so the context for this verse, if you look back to verse 19 in chapter 12, we went through this last week, but in verse 19 it says, So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. And so we want to remember that the triumphal entry has just happened, and the crowds, they're all gathered around. They are bearing witness to Jesus because he's raised Lazarus from the dead. And we saw a couple weeks ago that this has really angered and upset the Pharisees. And so we remember Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin from chapter 11. We saw their true motivation, that they don't want to lose power. They don't want to lose authority from Rome. And Jesus is threatening all of this. And so these Pharisees, they're standing here, they're seeing these crowds gather around Jesus, and they're saying to one another, they're pretty angry with one another, they're like, we are gaining nothing. What are we doing? And the whole world is going out to see Jesus. And so this is the evidence of that. This is the evidence of what they have said in verse 19. And what this does is this signals to us that Jesus' mission is now changing. He is now going to be focused on the Gentiles. And so he's more than just focused on the Jews. He's largely spent his time with the Jewish people, but now he's going to focus on the Gentiles. And so this has been a recurring theme that we've seen throughout John, that there's no racial, there's no ethnic barrier to salvation, that Jesus is focused on the Jews up to this point, but largely they have rejected him, even though that they have a, an entire theology built around this coming Messiah they are still rejecting Jesus, even though he's done all these incredible miracles in front of them, and all these miracles point to his divine nature, they are still rejecting him. Even though we're in the midst of the triumphal entry, we're going to see them turn on a dime. But now we have Gentiles who are actively coming to seek Jesus. And so the Jewish people naturally would have tried to exclude them and kept them out but we'll see that they will be included through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so these Gentiles, they come to Philip and Andrew. They say, hey, we want to meet Jesus. And so Philip and Andrew, they relay this message to Jesus. So look at verses 23 through 26. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So we see Jesus' response, and he doesn't directly respond to 
these Gentiles. He doesn't directly respond to Andrew and to Philip, but instead he goes in a different direction. And so we've all done this a time or two. You think if you're a parent, sometimes your kids come and they ask you, hey, where do babies come from? Do you answer that question directly? Not typically. You're like, go, go ask your mother where that happens. But Jesus isn't necessarily doing that. He's going to take the opportunity to address the entire crowd. He's going to respond. And he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And we've talked before about what he refers to when he talks about the hour. The hour is the appointed, ordained time for Jesus' death. This is God's sovereignty on display, that his death has to happen in order for there to be redemption. And it hasn't happened yet because God hasn't allowed it. We've seen a couple instances where the crowd, the religious leaders, they've wanted to kill Jesus, but Jesus has slipped away because he said the hour hasn't come. And so the hour up to this point has always been in the future. But now Jesus is saying, hey, that hour is now. The time is now. And so we see the purpose for the Son of Man to be glorified, and that is the whole purpose for the Son of Man to be glorified, that the crowd, as they hear this, as they say that um, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, think of the crowd around them. They've been waiting for a Messiah. They've been waiting for this military conqueror. And so they hear those words, it's now time for the Son of Man to be glorified. You can imagine the anticipation as they hear this. They're saying to themselves, this is everything that we've been waiting for. Like, this is the time. Rome is done. It's done. This is what they would have drawn on with the triumphal entry. This is what they're drawing on when they hear Jesus say that the hour has come. They're thinking back to Old Testament prophecies such as Isaiah 52, 13, where Isaiah says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and he shall be exalted, that he shall be glorified. But Jesus is going to give them a paradox that his glorification, his glorification will involve his own death. It's going to involve humiliation. It's going to involve shame. It's going to involve suffering. And this is utterly crazy to the crowd right there. So in verse 24, he starts talking about a grain of wheat. He uses a farming analogy. We've seen Jesus do this before, where he uses these physical descriptions of the world in order to communicate spiritual realities. This has been common in John. And Jesus does this so that it helps us understand what he is teaching about himself. And so they know that a grain of wheat is useless by itself. It does no good if that grain of wheat is not planted in the ground. So right now on our countertop, we have a couple seeds. They're just out there drying out. And if we just leave those seeds out there, nothing good will happen from those seeds. It's not until we actually put those seeds in the ground that they will bear fruit, that they will spring to life. But that's the natural function of the seed. The natural function is for it to bear fruit and that it must do what's unnatural. We have to bury that seed We have to let that seed die, and we have to bury it in the ground because it's only through the death of that seed that life comes forth, that it bears fruit. And so Jesus is saying the same thing about him, that he must die in order for him to bear fruit, that Jesus has to die for us to experience that fruit of salvation, that his death will open the door of salvation for us. 
So we want to know that if Jesus doesn't die, if he doesn't die, there is no redemption. There's no salvation for us. And again, this is absolutely radical to the people there surrounding Jesus. Absolutely radical. So Jesus goes on in verse 25. He talks about loving life versus hating life. And so what he's doing there is he's applying this teaching about himself with a grain of wheat. He's applying that to us, that he's not just talking about himself, but he's talking about us, that the truth that he reveals about himself has implications for us. He's saying, if I am this, then this is how your life will look. So he's giving us an indicative truth, and that leads to an imperative command for us. He's giving us the truth that his death is necessary, and it's the only path for salvation. And so because of that, we have the command that we are to model that very same sacrifice that Jesus is going to demonstrate, that we are going to lay down our lives as well. And so he talks about loving life versus hating life. And so he's not advocating suicide there, but he's talking about loving life means losing it. He's talking about the futility of a selfish approach to life. He's talking about only worrying about the good in my life, worrying about my own good, that I delight in this life, that I delight in this world more than I do God and what he's taught us in his word. And so in contrast, he said hating life means that's how we keep our life. That's how we gain it. And so we are to think so little of this life and so much of God that we are willing to sacrifice every last bit of our life for the Lord. We saw that in Daniel, didn't we, guys? We saw that in Daniel, willing to stand with the Lord to give up our life. And so following Jesus requires self-sacrifice. And Jesus is going to exemplify this supremely on the cross. And so we experience the same exact principle of death as Jesus, that we are to be like him, that as he lays down his life like a grain of wheat, we are to do the same. That as we guard ourselves for eternal life, that means that we are protecting ourselves from believing and acting as if this world is the ultimate reality. That we are protecting ourselves from believing and acting that this world is the ultimate reality. And so Jesus has shared the same principle elsewhere in Scripture. Look at Matthew chapter 10, verses 37 through 39. This is what Matthew writes. This is Jesus speaking. He says, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So this is the same principle that Jesus is teaching us here in John. And so we want to be clear, this isn't teaching us to hate our parents. It's not teaching us to hate our children. But there's to be such a stark difference between our love for our family, for those around us, that there's such a stark difference between that and our love for Jesus. That our love for Jesus should look so much more than it actually looks for our family. And that's really hard to fathom because I know that, man, we love our family, we love our children, we love our parents, but we can have a preoccupation with our family, we can have a preoccupation with other things in our life, 
whether it be job, our security, our comfort, our status, like all of these things can keep us from the Lord. And so when push comes to shove, are we willing to give up all of that? Are we willing to give up our family? Are we willing to give up our way of life that if Jesus calls us to lay it down, can we give it up? And so look at what Josh Moody says about this. He says, only as we die to our selfish selves can we find life as we were meant to enjoy it in fellowship with God. We must die to ourselves to live to Christ and to find real life in him. So Jesus, he continues on this train of thought in verse 26, and he says, losing life means finding life in being a servant. And so again, remember, he's speaking to a crowd of people He's speaking to a crowd of Jewish people, and they want no part of being a servant. We want no part of being a servant. But this is what Jesus is teaching us, that losing life means finding life and being a servant. And again, this is rooted in who Jesus is, that we give up who we are in order to serve Jesus, that serving Jesus requires following, and following Jesus requires serving. It's a both-and proposition. We can't just do one of the other. We can't just say, I'll believe in Jesus and then not follow him and serve him. And so we've talked about this a lot throughout John, that belief is always accompanied by our obedience. That belief, our belief, our faith is manifested through our obedience to Jesus. And we cannot demonstrate our faith without that obedience. And so our obedience, it's demonstrated through serving. It's demonstrated through becoming a servant. And as we do that, Jesus says that the Father will honor us. So let's continue on. Look at verses 27 through 34. Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, This voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now judgment is upon the world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from earth, will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. The crowd then answered him, We have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So we see Jesus as he's continuing to teach this crowd. He says that he is troubled. And so at this point, he is in constant turmoil in anticipation of the cross. So he is stirred up, he's unsettled, he's probably experiencing some horror, some anxiety here. That's what that word there is communicating. And so we want to see that laying down his life, Jesus laying down his life is hard. Like sometimes we think that Jesus, because he is the son of God, that it was just kind of robotic, that he could just do this and it was easy for him. But we want to see that Jesus was human too, that he's wrestling wrestling with his humanity. He's wrestling with the emotional toll that this is taking on, that he is going to take on the full wrath of God for our punishment of sin, 
that each of us, we know, we deserve damnation, we deserve death because of our sin, that each and every one of our sins, we each bear that. But Jesus is going to bear that times billions. He's going to take on the punishment for billions. And so much so that we'll see that this eventually leads him, as he's praying in the garden, he, he prays and he starts sweating drops of blood. Have you ever been so stressed out in your life that you sweat drops of blood? Have you ever thought about how stressed you must be, how much turmoil, how much angst you must have in order to do that? But yet that's the state that Jesus is finding himself in. And again, this displays his humanity, that he doesn't desire this death, that it's not easy to, for him to just lay down his life. But we see that Jesus, he knows this purpose, that his whole purpose is to go to the cross, that he's submissive to the Father's will, and he's going to be obedient to death. And it's because that our redemption depends on this. And so we see Jesus pray. He says, Father, glorify your name. And so we want to note that he's not asking for him to be rescued. We'll see this again later on. But Jesus doesn't ask to be rescued. He's not asking for deliverance. And again, this should point to this familiar pattern. This demonstrates that the cross was necessary, that Jesus knows this. And his whole purpose is to focus on bringing glory to the Father. He's not seeking glory for himself, but he wants us to point to God's glory, we see that as the ultimate purpose, that Jesus doesn't just endure the cross just for our sakes, but he does it in order to bring the Father glory, because it's in God's glory that's where we experience salvation. That God is glorified as he saves sinners. God is glorified as he saves sinners through Jesus' death on the cross. That our salvation is the result of God the Father being glorified. And so then we hear a loud voice. God the Father responds. He says, I have glorified it, and I will do it again. And so this is the third time in the Gospels that we've heard God the Father speaking to Jesus. We see it at his baptism. We've seen it at his transfiguration. And so God has already said that he's glorified himself, but he's going to do it again on the cross. There's confusion over the voice, some people think it's an angel. Some people think that it's thunder. Some people are spiritually blind, and they just misinterpret these manifestations from the spiritual world, and they attribute it to natural events. But Jesus addresses that, and he says, hey, this voice isn't for me. This voice is for you. And if that voice is for them there that were gathered around, that means that this voice is for us. It's not just for the crowd. And so we want to listen in to what God is saying. And so in verses 31 through 33, we see that judgment has come into the world. And Jesus tells us that the ruler of the world is cast out. And so Satan, sin, death will be defeated through the cross. And so even though Jesus is saying, I'm going to the cross, that's going to look like defeat. He's saying that that's going to be my victory. And through this victory, all of humanity, that includes the people there, but it also includes us, that through this victory of Jesus, all of humanity, we're either going to be judged or we're going to be saved. Because the cross condemns the sin of the world, condemns your sin, 
condemns my sin. It condemns all of sin. And so Jesus here is anticipating God's final triumph over sin. It starts here at the cross. It ends in Revelation chapter 20. As, as sin, as death, as Hades, as everything is wrapped up and cast into the lake of fire. But Jesus is saying, right now, I have the victory. And I am going to win. And through this, I'm going to be lifted up. And so he's really focusing in now. He's going to get explicit on the cross. Jesus says that I will be lifted up. And so imagine the tension ratcheting up as he says this. And so this isn't the first time that Jesus has used this language. Think back to John chapter 3, verses 14 through 15. Jesus, there talking to Nicodemus, says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And so when we talked about that several months ago, we saw that that was an allusion to Numbers chapter 21, where the the Israelites are wandering in the desert, they're grumbling against God. And so God sends some fiery serpents, some fiery snakes into the camp, and they bite the people and they die. And so Moses intercedes, and he raises up a bronze serpent. He makes a, a, a statue of a snake out of bronze, and he raises that up. And all the people have to do when they are bit in order to be saved, they just have to look at that serpent and they're saved. And so in the same way, Jesus is saying, I'm going to be lifted up for salvation. You're going to see me lifted up. I am the object of your salvation. But also this language, Jesus is telling them, hey, I am going to die on a cross. I am going to be raised up on a cross that I'm going to be lifted up for atonement, that I am going to bear your sins on a cross, and that this redemption, your redemption, that requires my death. Jesus says that this is going to bring all men to him, meaning that it's going to be for Jews, it's going to be Gentiles, that salvation is for everyone. We talked about that a few minutes ago. But See the tension here in verse 34. There's this confusion. The crowd questions like, hey, how can the Messiah die? How can Jesus really die if he's claiming to be the Messiah? And so the crowd, they're, they're picking up. Okay, Jesus, you're saying that you're going to die, but yet you're claiming to be the king? This creates utter confusion Right? This is probably why the people changed their opinion of Jesus over the course of six days. Because again, we want to see this tension, that this is what the entire Jewish nation has waited for. They've waited for this coming Messiah, and Jesus is saying, hey, I'm going to die. And so they think that this is a giant bait and switch. And again, I, I can't think of a situation where we as Americans, we're all looking forward to one thing, hoping for one particular outcome. We just don't have a frame of reference for that. And so I, I've, are there any Office fans in here? Anybody that watches The Office? So you know the episode called Scott's Tots? So there's this episode where um, it, the timeline starts before the show actually starts, but Michael Scott He's the regional manager of Dunder Mifflin Paper Company. And so he thinks that within 10 years, he's going to be a multimillionaire. And because he thinks that, 
He goes to a third grade class and promises, hey, if you all will stay in school and graduate high school, I will pay for your college. And so these are underprivileged kids that wouldn't have a chance to go to college. And so he thinks, man, my life is set up. I'm going to be a multimillionaire. This is going to be no problem. Well, the problem is he doesn't become a multimillionaire. And so these kids, he's promised to pay their college tuition. And so their senior year, they invite him to come to the class. And they're going to have this big party because they have all made it to graduation. And so Michael has to tell everyone, I can't pay for your tuition. And so imagine, there's this big party. They sing to him. They have this big presentation. And he tells them, hey, sorry. And imagine the anger. They, those kids flip out on him. Right? That's what's happening here. That's what's happening to these Jewish people. They're upset. This is not what we've been taught about the Messiah. This is why it leads to anger. They can't accept that the Messiah will die. And so we want to look at why this is such a stumbling block for them. And so Melise earlier, she read out of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and so Paul draws on this. And so she read the entire passage, but I want to focus in on just verse 23 in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23. This is what Paul writes. He says, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. And so we want to understand what it is about the cross, why that is so difficult for those listening, why it's so difficult for them to understand. And so we know that the context where Jesus is, that's under the control of the Roman Empire. And even today, we still see remnants of the Roman Empire. If you go to Great Britain, they have Hadrian's Wall up in the northern part of the, the country. And so that wall was set there. That is one of the boundaries, the northernmost boundary of the Roman Empire. And so typically, we think of walls like that as a sort of defensive structure. But that was really the Romans marking like, hey... We don't care about y'all out there, but everybody that's in this wall, you all are our servants, that you are slaves to Rome, that you are subservient to Rome, that you are less than Rome. And so rebellion, crimes against Rome, that was looked at as uh, a slave rising up against a master. So whenever there was a rebellion and they captured the leaders of the rebellion, Rome would crucify these rebel leaders. And so crucifixion then became synonymous with the punishment for slaves because Rome wanted to show their dominance over everyone. Rome wanted to, to prove their point, to put everybody in their place, to know that we are the greatest, you guys are slaves. And so they designed this uh, execution of the cross. They designed it to be excruciating and utterly humiliating. Like we have a sanitized version of what the cross was to these people. And so the method of death through the cross was suffocation, but that took place over a course of days. I imagine drowning would be the worst way to die. I do not want to drown, but drowning only takes a couple of minutes. Think of drowning over the course of three days. That's what the Romans were doing. Before they put you up on the cross, they beat you, they stripped you naked, and of course you're fixed up there on the cross. And you have birds 
pecking out your eyes. You have birds pecking at your flesh, at the soft tissue, and you can't do anything about it but scream. It is absolutely horrific. And so that's why Paul says that it's folly for the Gentiles. It is folly because to preach Christ crucified means that Christ, that his crucifixion is for slaves. And kings do not suffer the penalty of slaves, do they? Kings don't endure the humiliation and the shame of the cross. So to the Romans, to the Gentiles, when they hear that the king, the Messiah, is going to be killed on the cross, that is actual comedy to them. It's the height of foolishness. It's absolutely absurd. And it makes no sense to the Gentiles that the divine son of God, the king, the coming king, would be killed in the manner of a slave. And so for the Jews, it's the same sort of thing. It's a stumbling block. It's nonsensical to them. It's heresy to their theology. And it's because they misunderstand who Jesus is and what he's supposed to be. And so they know, they know the promises of God. They think about Isaiah chapter 9. They think about passages like Ezekiel 37, where God promises that his son will rule forever, that the Messiah will rule for forever. And so for the Messiah to die a physical death, the Jewish people are like, that's contradicting God's promises. How can this happen? What kind of Messiah dies? And how can Jesus save us from Rome if he's dead up on a cross? And so that's why they reject Jesus. That's why they reject what he is saying. It literally doesn't make sense. It is crushing all of their dreams. And so for both the Jews and the Gentiles, they fail to understand this upside-down nature of what Jesus has come to do. They fail to understand that exaltation, that Jesus' glorification, that's going to come through death. And that through death, that leads to life. That loving life means losing it. That losing life means gaining it. That greatness means serving that it's not about this life here, that Jesus didn't come to fit our expectations of what we see. He didn't come to be a military king. He's not coming to establish an earthly kingdom, but that he will rule through death. And that's why he came on that donkey. And so look at verses 35 through 36. Jesus responds to their question, and so Jesus said to them, For a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of light. And so Jesus responds to the crowd. He responds to the question. And again, he doesn't direct, directly address their question they want to know who's the son of man because you can't be him if you're saying you're going to die. And so Jesus essentially responds and says, hey, my words and my deeds have already given you the answer that you need. I've already told you. Look at my teaching. What have I taught you? Look at the miracles. I've healed the blind. I've raised the dead. And so because of that, I'm giving you a final invitation to believe. I want you to respond I want you to believe in the light because I'm not always going to be here. And so as application, Jesus, he's offering 
that same invitation to us, that same invitation. He wants us to respond. He wants us to believe in the light right now. And so we know the cross doesn't make sense if we're only concerned about Rome. The cross doesn't make sense if we're only concerned with this life here on this earth. That if we only care about not disrupting our plans, the cross doesn't make sense. But it doesn't make sense because our real issue is the issue of sin. It's not this world. That our issue is a spiritual problem. It's not Rome. It's not the government. It's not our job. It's not our finances. It's not our family. It's not our culture. It's not our lifestyle. That we are separated from God because of our sin and that there is no remedy for our sin. That we can't do anything about it, just like Adam walked us through, through communion. That there's no military leader, there's no king, there's no general that can save us. We could have the president of the United States conquer the entire world and it still won't save us. We're still in trouble if we haven't dealt with our own sin. And that's because our sin requires something that's totally different. Our sin requires death. Our sin requires a new sort of king, a different type of king. And so Matt Carter, Josh Redberg, they sum it up well. So I want to read this. They kind of sum up all of this. We are looking for a different king. So they write, this is the kind of king that God has promised. A king who would lay down his life so that we could be rescued. He is a king who would take the punishment that we deserve so that we could enjoy a life we do not deserve. Like a grain of wheat falling into the dirt and producing a harvest, Jesus refuses to stay in the ground. He crushes death by rising from the grave. He wins. Death is defeated. Jesus reigns over everything. And Jesus then turns and applies the principle of the seed to his disciples. He calls every disciple to follow his example. Here the destination is eternal life. And you can miss it by loving your life. That is by making your goal in life to be safe and secure and comfortable and surrounded only by pleasant things. That's the path to perishing. Or Jesus says, you can take another path and arrive at eternal life. That path is called hating your life in this world. Notice that he adds, in this world. Hating your life in this world means that you will choose to, things that, choose to do things that look foolish to the world. You will deny yourself things. You will take risk and embrace the path of suffering for the sake of love. This, Jesus says, will lead to eternal life and not death. And so how is it possible to hate our life in this world? The answer is in verse 26. We follow Jesus. We don't focus on ourselves and our situations. We pursue Jesus with every fiber of our beings. The way to love your life is to focus exclusively on yourself. And the way to hate your life is to focus exclusively on Christ. Seek him and you will deny yourself. Jesus holds out a great motivation to seek him and to hate yourself, that we will be where he is, and we will be honored by the Father. 
Great joy and reward come from moving our attention from our own comfort and well-being and instead living lives of radical commitment to the only one who is worthy of it. My goal in this life is to help people find joy in Jesus. It's the only kind of joy that lasts. Here's how you find joy. Die to yourself. Die to little dreams. Die to empty routines. Die to playing life safe. Die to protecting your reputation. Die to selfish, small living. Die to stingy self-centeredness. Die. Only then can you live. And only living brings joy. So that's why Jesus in chapter 11, we saw this a couple weeks ago. That's why he says to Martha, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then do you remember the question that he poses to Martha? Do you believe this? So that's what Jesus, again, is asking us. Do you believe this? So stand with me as we pray. Lord God, Lord, we thank you that you are different, that you are a different kind of king. We thank you that you did not come to conquer the world and to just simply make our lives better, but that you came, God, to meet our biggest need, one that we are wholly incapable of meeting ourselves. And so you gave yourself for us. You took our place. And so we ask now that you would glorify yourself. We ask that you would help us to lose our lives for your sake that you would bring dead hearts to life. God, that is our simple prayer. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your spirit that is moving inside of us. And so we give you all the glory. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus.